recording with Dr. Federer, Dr. William Federer, author, and I got to read this time instead of butchering it like it did last time. Socialism, the real history from Plato to the present, how the deep state capitalizes on crises to consolidate control. And we, sp- please introduce yourself for all the new listeners. I'm an idiot. Uh, yes. Well, this is Bill Federer and um, great to be with you, Tommy. So last time we spoke about, well, your book, and I'll put it in the description as always. It's a fantastic book. It's it's very thoroughly – I feel like normally a book that covered the topics you cover, I feel like it would normally have to be like a, like a war and peace length book. But you, you banged it out in a, in a relatively short book, I mean all things considered. And so really touching on what you said from Plato to the present – Listening to it, and you can get Kindle to read it to you. Listening to it again, I kind of want to zoom out more. Like one one thing that uh, I've had friends on here, we talk about. And this is an odd analogy, but it's called the meta of video games, where if you play a game again and again, you can start to figure out how to beat it in like unorthodox ways. So, for instance, and bear with me, this analogy will work. For instance, like games where maybe there's a you're in a country and there's like the evil guy who occupies it and you have to fight through the whole thing and defeat all the bad guys. And as you go, you can unlock better weapons and, you know, night vision goggles and it goes and goes and goes. So then you have to break it down to, okay, well, the best technology means you can beat the game faster. Well, how do you get the technology? You have to buy it from the stores. How do you buy it? In the games, there's often like wilderness and you can, you know, kill animals and sell their skins or something like pelts. And so if you play a game again and again, sometimes you find out the fastest way to beat the game is to just kill a bunch of like rare animals, get all the weapons, and then you can steamroll a game that's designed to take like a hundred hours of gameplay. You can beat it in like five hours, but you just have to put in the initial work and then you can break it down even more. And what's the fastest way to do it? Find a store next to a farm, <laughs> the farm, go to the store and you can. And is that necessarily fun? No, because the game is fun. But there is uh, there is a level of fun and excitement in solving the puzzle in ways that even the developers didn't plan for you to do it. So what I want to get to is, is there a meta to socialism? Is there a way to to counteract it. I mean, we went through the whole Cold War and we spent trillions of dollars and espionage and always one-upping and it's Sputnik. Okay, we went to the moon. Okay, ICBMs, atom bombs, hydrogen bombs, lasers, satellites, stealth bombers. It keeps going up and up and up and up. Is there, in your opinion, is there a meta to fight socialism or to fight at least the evils as as you put forward in your book of socialism? Oh, a good, good question. Um, basically, it's the study of human nature and that human nature is lazy and selfish. And they've learned how to appeal to that. Uh, and once they get it on their side, uh, you know, when you train an animal, what do you do? You find out it's the na- things that it naturally wants. And you say, OK, if you want that, you've got to, you know, jump through these hoops uh, and you, you train it. But it just wants that treat, so to speak. Uh, so socialism is a study of human nature for a, a dictatorship. 
so so basically socialism is a, a marketing campaign for dictatorship it's uh, a bait and switch on a cultural level it, i may have shared this before you know but it promises heaven delivers hell it, it is a uh i tell people if uh, older fish could tell younger fish to stay away from shiny things dangling in the water like a fishing hook, but they can't. So every new generation of younger fish sees that socialism is a shiny thing dangling in the water, free food, free clothes, free education, free welfare, free, 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 free is attractive, but there's a hook there. And uh, a great quote from Gerald Ford, he says, the government that's big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything you have. And and so it is, um, uh, you know, imagine a little kid with a sharp knife, you know, a toddler, and you will tell that kid anything to get him to put that sharp knife down. Yeah. I'll give you some candy. You want a toy? We'll take you to McDonald's. Here's a cookie. Once the once the knife is down, all bets are off. Yeah. And you you know, go don't you ever touch that <laughs> knife. And so so socialism is telling us a bunch of nice things for us to give up our freedoms and ultimately the, the Second Amendment. Uh, and once we give up those freedoms, all bets are off. They don't have to you know, carry through on them. Even Machiavelli said, if people are naive enough to believe your promise, they'll be naive enough to believe your excuse of why you didn't fulfill your promise. <laughs> so it, it, and and the only way you can identify it is to know history. So uh, I tell people in, in one of my talks, I start off with a digitized picture on my PowerPoint presentation. And you're so zoomed in, all you see is the pixels. And I asked the audience, what are we looking at? Well, they all have a dumbfounded look on their face. I uh, can't tell. So I click zoom out a couple of times and they still can't tell. I can't, you know, zoom out a couple more times. What are you looking at? They go, well, it sort of looks like a nose. Well, let's zoom out a couple more clicks. And then you finally say, oh, it's a face. And I zoom out more than you can recognize the person. I said, sometimes we're so zoomed into the day-to-day news. And you ask people, what's happening in the world? Uh, I don't know. This pixel looks like the last one. This today looks like yesterday. Let's zoom out, look at a couple of days, a couple of weeks, months, years, centuries, millenniums. Let's, and then when you begin to come into focus, you say, oh, okay, we've gone from dictators ruling through fear and their empires keep getting bigger because with military advancements, they can kill more people. And with technological advancements, they can track more people. And the king of England was the most powerful king on the planet. The sun never set on the British Empire. He had this enormous navy with ships that had a tar on the they had a tar lake down in trinidad or someplace that made it so that the barnacles couldn't attach so these ships could go really fast and they got their masts from the uh the force of maine so they're really tall these you know wooden masts and so they they were able to dominate the oceans and and then uh uh, they had India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, you know, and America. So, so the King of England was a globalist. He was a one world government guy. And America's founders decided they didn't want this globalist guy telling us what to do. So they broke away and flipped it. And if it had not been for some very unique, uh, things, we, we would have never come into existence. Number one is we had a century and a half of practicing self-government sort of training wheels because Europe was the chessboard. I mean, these kings of England, you know, they looked at America as these loser colonies that just cost them money, right? I mean, they it would be like pouring money into an investment that never gives a return. 
It's like, I don't want to give any more money to these colonies. They're just wasting. And so they would um, say, run yourself and just don't cost me anything and don't bother me anything while I focus on this chessboard of Europe. And and so it wasn't until 150 years of that that they began to realize, hey, America's pretty prosperous. Let's let's tighten the screws. And by that time, we didn't want that. The second thing was we had a 3,000-mile ocean. And uh, there were several instances where, you know, the, the British ships were delayed because of storms and communication and allowed us. But the, the other one was the since Britain was the most powerful, you had the second, third and fourth biggest powerful nations helping us. So France was the second biggest nation. When they decided to join the war, Britain not only had to put down a rebellion in their colonies, they had to defend all their British colonies around the globe against the French Navy and the Dutch and the Spanish. And so the Spanish were funneling money to the revolution through a front company in Paris that they had put up a million francs. Uh, and this French company was funneling arms and supplies to the Americans. Um, and, uh, and the, the, the British didn't know about it. And then the Spanish uh, also uh, controlled the Caribbean. And there was a French guy who was the governor of New Spain named um, Bernardo de Galvez. And he uh, would let the Dutch ships that would go to a Dutch island and they would bring supplies that they would swap out to an American ship on this island, and then these ships would come up uh, to New Orleans through what was New Spain at the time. And then uh, Galvez would let it come up to the Ohio River, and then they would supply the Americans with with arms. And the British said, hey, stop that. And and Galvez says no. And then Galvez uh, took his army and drove the British out of Mobile, Alabama, and drove the British out of Pensacola, and drove the British out of... uh, all of the entire Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so, and he was made an honorary American citizen and a town in Texas is named after him, Galveston. And there's a statue of Bernardo de Galvez in Washington, D.C. I think it's right across from the State Department. Um, but here's a Spanish guy who helped America against Britain and then the Dutch. Uh, and the Dutch were lending us money and, and so forth. And um, and then smuggling supplies into us. Uh, so you had the we, we on our own could have never defeated the British. But once France and England, France and, and the Dutch and Spain helped us, then um, Britain uh, was had, had to have their military resources uh, spread out around the world. Um, but all these things were were a unique set of circumstances that uh, never was and never could be again. India wanted to break away from the British, but they couldn't when the because the British disarmed them all, and, and um, it wasn't until after World War II that India got free from the British. Um, you know, Egypt, all these other different colonies, they they, they couldn't. But America, because of a 3,000-mile ocean, because these other countries got involved, we were able to. And, and so the word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. So our founding fathers 
what makes America great, right? MAGA, make America great. And what makes America great is you get to be the king of your life. You get to decide where you want to live, who you want to marry, what career you want to pursue, what church you want to go to or not go to, what food you want to eat. You can eat pork if you want to. You can. You don't have to wear a burqa if you don't want to. You're basically in charge of your life. It's a risk, but it's, you get the return. And then all of us together are in charge of the country. And so the word citizen is co-king. So it's a bottom-up form of government versus a top-down king-run form of government. Socialism is a flip from the people ruling themselves bottom-up back to a dictator ruling top-down. And now our founders studied republic very thoroughly, and they said there's two things that a bottom-up form of government relies upon. You need an educated populace and a moral populace. So if the people are the king, the, the, the people need to know what's going on. And then the people need to have morals. And uh, that they got those ideas from ancient Israel. And if you like, I can share on that. Please do. I'm, 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 I'm sitting here dumbfounded. I'm just listening to you. Please, please keep going. I've, you're, you're in. You're an insanely fascinating guy. I, I don't want to talk. I want to listen to you. Keep going. Well, um, so the Reformation took place 1517, Martin Luther. And from the 1517 all the way through the 1500s up to the early 1600s, um, which is when the Age of Enlightenment started, you had a century where the scholars in Europe are not just thrilled that they can read the Bible in their own language for most of them the first time in their country's history, they were fascinated with a particular part of the Bible. And what part was that? It was the first 400 year period when Israel came out of Egypt before they got King Saul. So it's called the Hebrew Republic. And it was the first time in world history where you had a nation with millions of people and no king. Uh, And I apologize that I may have mentioned it previously, but I spent a couple of years researching every civilization that's ever existed on the planet, all the way back to ancient Assyrians and ancient Babylonians and ancient Egyptians and ancient India, Harappan and uh, ancient China of 5,000 years of dynasties. And it's all kings. It's all, and, and it goes back to the first invention ever was the plow, right? Cain was a tiller of the soil. They went from hunter-gatherers to agriculture on farms. And then people started hitting each other with them, and they turned into weapons, and then people gravitated together for protection. They no longer felt safe on their farms, so they would move together uh, for protection. And when you get people together, someone is a little better at knowing how to fight than the rest. And everyone says, you be our captain, and there's even a Bible story of them all going to Jephthah and he's out in the, you know, sort of a banished guy, but he knows his reputation for fighting. And they all go to him and say, you be our captain. And so, so this captain would fight and you would win. That is a good thing. You survive. But then this captain would have kids and grandkids and everybody would be appreciative of them. Everybody would want to be friends with them. Everybody would want to butter up to them. And before you know it, it began to be sort of a political family. Uh And then it began to be a more of a political machine. And then it began to turn into more like a mob, more like a gang, more like a king. And the king 
claimed not just to defend everybody in the city, but he wanted to keep control of what's happening. And you would have to kiss up to him. And if you didn't do and say what this king told you to do, he would kick you out of his city. That's called being ostracized or kicked out. And he would even kill you. And so what started as a good thing turned into an oppressive thing. Uh, And there's even a Bible story of Joseph was a good man in Egypt, and he helped concentrate power into the hands of the Pharaoh. And what did that Pharaoh do with this concentrated power? He did good. He fed the children of Israel. He gave them the best land of Goshen. He even gave them jobs taking care of his cattle. But then there was a new Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And he used all of that concentrated power to oppress the children of Israel, making them slaves, making them throw their children, their boys into the Nile River. Right? And so that's the dilemma. You get a good person in and he does something. He actually wants to streamline everything so he can do good more efficiently. But at some point, he has got to turn that power over to somebody else. And that somebody else likes their position. It's got perks to it. Everybody's, you know, and they and they don't want to be challenged. And the temptation is that they use their position to squelch and squash and crush anybody that challenges them. And so it turns oppressive. And so that we've seen that recently where you have, you know, some president, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter says, well, let's start a department of education because we want to help all the kids get smart, right? Have standards. Well, that, that's good. Well, now it turns into the the government controlling the kids and now pushing transgendered, uh, critical race theory. And, you know, right, you want this money from the federal government, you've got to teach all this anti-American stuff. It's like, how did we get here with the Federal Department of Education? It started with something good. Another classic is William Howard Taft. He was the the president, twenty uh, seventh president, if I'm not mistaken, after uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and he then becomes the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. He's a Republican, and fairly good guy from all that we can be seen about him. And and he is the first Supreme Court justice to hire a clerk. Prior to him, the Supreme Court justices had to do their own own homework, <laughs> right? He's the one who moved the Supreme Court out of a basement chamber in the U.S. Capitol building into its own really big, impressive building. And he's the one who began federalizing the court system. What's that? That means when the Supreme Court says it, every lower court has to honor it. Prior to him, you would have different districts and district courts and they would make different decisions and they did not always jive and everybody was fine with it. Sort of like today, some states have smoking bans and others don't. Some states had blue laws where all the businesses were closed on Sunday, others don't. Some states sell marijuana and others don't. Some states have gambling, others don't. Everybody's fine with it. You sort of go to this. Back then it was the same way with court decisions. Uh, And so William Howard Taft began to streamline it. Well, he was a Republican. He was a good guy. But then FDR becomes president. And he uh, was going to pack the court, but then a bunch of justices died. And so he was able to put on all the people he wanted. And they were big government people. And so now they use all this. So the, the moment they say it, boom, it's the law of the land. 
They say something else, law of the land, something else, law of the land. And so all of a sudden, the Supreme Court has bypassed Congress. Congress is the branch that's supposed to make laws. And um, anyway, so uh, so that's the dilemma is you have somebody that's good concentrating and streamlining the power because they want to do good more efficiently, but they're not in office forever. It eventually gets into the hands of somebody that wants to use it oppressively. So the founding fathers decided, let's just separate the power. So there, to them, evil was not one party or the other. Evil was concentrated power. And the answer is separated power. Uh, We saw this at the beginning of the country where you had Alexander Hamilton, John Adams, wanting a strong central government so they could have a navy and a stable currency. A navy to defend us against, you know, the French were capturing American ships and then later the War of 1812. And and a stable currency is we wanted to get our country back where we could do business. And uh, the continental currency was, you know, there's a saying, it's not worth a continental Mm -hmm. because they printed so much of it, wasn't backed by gold. So you had Hamilton and Adams wanted a strong central government. So they were called federalists. And then you had anti-federalists, which were Jefferson and others that wanted a small federal government so that we wouldn't repeat the errors of King George III controlling everything. So you had this big government, small government uh, battle that was going on. And they've oscillated through the years where they sort of even swap issues from time to time. Um, but the, uh, the, the danger of especially the anti-federalists saw it was that you would have um, – the power concentrated. So Patrick Henry, five-time governor of the state of Virginia, he opposed the U.S. Constitution. He spoke at the the convention where Virginia was considering ratifying the U.S. Constitution. And he said there are not enough limits in it. He demanded that there be handcuffs on this federal government. His friend was George Mason. And George Mason uh, helped write the U.S. Constitution, but refused to sign the U.S. Constitution. Why? There weren't enough limits on it. And they saw that this thing could eventually, uh, Patrick Henry says, we're staking our whole experiment of self-government on the, the hopes that men will be moral enough to pass laws to punish themselves. Uh, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it's like, okay, I'm going to pass a law that's going to punish me if I violate it. It's like, it's like you're going totally against human nature. Another, I think was Jefferson. He says, you know, we're all, and again, a paraphrase, we're imagining that Washington will be the executive branch. And he is a moral person that shows self-restraint. And he said that we're imagining that, the future generations will be as moral as we are. And that is a mistake. We need to imagine that they are people with totally without morals and self-restraint and write this constitution to limit them. And um, so, so big government, small government was the dilemma. And, um, uh, and so socialism comes along, it promises big government solutions and it always sounds good, but in the process, you're giving up freedoms that you'll quite honestly never get back again because people don't like giving up power. Um, why would you do it? It, it takes an extreme, uh, you know, Eisenhower, great guy, won World War II. He's president. He hired a guy named Clarence Mannion, 
who was the dean of the Notre Dame Law School. Uh, and his job was to dismantle all the big government things that FDR had put in place. Mm-hmm. And Clarence Mannion comes up with this list. Okay, get rid of this, get rid of this department, of this department, this work. Well, then a bunch of rhino Republicans come to Eisenhower and says, no, 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 wait, wait, don't get rid of that. We're in office now. We can use this big government position and we can do all of our good stuff. And they got Eisenhower to say, well, okay. And that's all it took. And that those big government things continued until you get another uh, Democrat in there and says, okay, um, it's, uh, uh, you know, very rare. It's like rat, a ratchet wrench. If you've ever tightened things mm-hmm. where, you know, each time you, you ratchet it one more click, um, you can move it back in the other direction, but the click stays where it's at. Yeah. And then, and then another click. And so it's like, um, the, the usurping of power away from the people to one little click at a time. And then you go through a period when it's not so bad, but it doesn't, they don't give up the click. It just waits till the, another click comes along. And, you know, I remember when nine eleven first happened and they began to strip search everybody at the airport. And, um, at first, everybody was objecting to it and everything, and then finally they got used to it. Mm-hmm. And um, and then they come up with, you know, now it's masks, and you know, and and it's but it's one thing after another that they'll say, well, we're, we want to track you, we want to put an app on your phone, we want to make sure that you know we can digitally trace everything you're buying, and and there's always some good emergency that they push these things through, you know, the the um. NSA was pushed through by Bush to make sure there's no more terrorist attacks, right? But then it turned into Obama using the NSA to dig up dirt on his political enemies. Yeah. So it's turned into sort of a, a KGB deep deep state type thing. Yeah. Um, um, anyway, I'm just sort of rambling now. No, no. But, but socialism is a sales job uh, for flipping it back from uh, the people ruling themselves in a time of crisis. They yield that freedom to a top-down form of government but it never goes back to the original setting. So, so whereas I do it with video games, you have, you've done the meta of human civilization. You've gone through and found what's the theme of the game and is the theme beating the map or is it killing farm animals to buy the guns? You've done the meta of all of, of human history and yeah, it, 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 to me, the one thing that I guess always sticks out to me, Right. Because obviously I I have my political biases and I I can't just look at someone else and be like, oh, you're stupid. Like I need to I need to prove my point. Why am I correct? Why are they incorrect? And I have to be open to to the inverse. The one thing that I always try to examine is, you know, we we I say we my generation mostly say all these corporations are evil. A lot of them are. They, they're, they're greedy, they hoard for themselves, there's crony capitalism, through lobbyism, they, they, they set the stage so it's good for them and not good for anyone else, uncompetitive. We need to bring in the government to dissolve all of it. They'll provide the phones. Sure, okay, let's just take that thought experiment. We're in this system where it's kind of like, uh, wasn't there a study some years ago that said if we took all the wealth in the world and distributed equally to every man, woman, and child... That within like 20 years, like computer simulations show that it would go back to roughly the same centers because those people will, if you take LeBron James or Tom Brady and put them on a team, they're eventually going to get the team better to where they are the dominant team and everyone's going to go, we got to break them apart. 
But man, you, you, you can't destroy leadership. You can't destroy people that are doing this. So individuals that can amass $100 billion and, and buy off lobbyists and influence their district, those people aren't going away. So if we strip down this free market system and say it's all going to be government, those people are going to the people that rise to this top of of Wall Street or or of the the defense contract they're going to rise up to those same positions of power they're going to to them it's not it's not capitalism or socialism they're going to thrive in the existing playing field and get to the positions of power and then like LeBron James or Tom Brady they're going to consolidate their power and they're going to set reinforcements to reinforce their power so they don't lose it right now we have Yes, huge multinational corporations that have absorbed a bunch of smaller companies, but they at least there is some competition. If we just remove all of it and say the government's going to take over, what we're going to get is one big power and a bunch of nothings at the bottom. All that is is reducing competition even more. Those same people are going to boil to the top. So to me, it's it's sort of best case scenario that it's not all consolidated in one spot. And obviously I'm just, you know, patting myself on the back and you and I are saying the same thing. So that, that point's kind of moot, but to move from that, like you said, every new generation has to learn it on their own. Every fish has to see the, the sparkling, uh, fishing lure, the hook, and they have to learn to avoid it. Is that a meta of human history? Are we, are we doomed to, we always have to, hard, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. Is that a fundamental truth to the world where it, we will always be at this point there, everything we're talking about ultimately does, is it applicable? Does every new generation have to learn it on their own. I mean, in the 1700s, were they going, was there a Tommy and a Dr. Federer going, all right, we figured it out, we figured out how to conquer socialism, and now we're here questioning the same things again. Is it something that is just going to arise every single generation? Can it be something that can be stomped out for good, or is it a learning process of every generation from now to the time when we have you know, settlements on Pluto? Is, is it something where we are going to have to fight it every generation from the times where we're using plowshares plow and swords to where we have touchscreen iPhones and gigabit Ethernet? Yeah, um, great question. And yes, uh, Jesus says the wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. And so we're, every day somebody writes a computer virus. It's like, why do they do it? I don't know, but you need to update your antivirus software. And the next day they write another virus. Who yeah. does that? I don't know, but they do it. And then you got to update it again. It's like, you're going to have the good and the bad. The the weapons improve. The stakes get higher. It takes a more, it's taking on a more global aspect than it's never been before. But the ultimate, uh, it's no different than Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. It's the same, Cain, Kill, and Abel. It's that same, St. Augustine called it libido dominandi, the lust to dominate. And so, uh, you know, the moment Adam and Eve sinned, uh, God knew exactly uh, the, uh, it's like a tear. Uh, when I lived in Texas, uh, you'd have grass, and then you have this sticker grass that would look, as long as you, you know, 
with its little, the grass looks the same. But if you let this sticker grass grow, it comes up and it's got these barbs on it that if you walk barefoot across your backyard, they will go in there. They break off. They're like splinters. I mean, um, but it, it looks the same unless you let them grow. And so God knew exactly when Adam and Eve sinned, what is it was going to turn into. But um, he's let this 6,000-year thing play out um, so that, uh, you know, the, the book of Revelations, it says the angels cry out, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. It's like everybody's going to see God. You're just in, in judging this wicked thing. And um, so, so it's human nature. This, the selfish fallen human nature that gets to play out. Um, there's a thing in geometry called um, Fibonacci sequence or the golden ratio or phi, P-H-I. Um, and yeah, so it's the little circle, little bigger circle, little bigger, bigger circle, like a seashell, or like a tornado or a hurricane or a galaxy, the way it spins. And uh, it can be used uh, to, uh, in academics, to explain lots of things, investments. They say if, if an investment grows at a certain rate, they can say, well, all things being considered, it'll continue to grow on the same Fibonacci sequence, golden ratio five, and it'll eventually reach this really good investment, right? Um, and so uh, I decided in one of my books called Change to Chains um, to study the expansion of empires on planet Earth. And so you have, again, Nimrod Tower of Babel, and then you got uh, the next is Gilgamesh, king of Uruk. Mm -hmm. He's the first one to build the wall around the city. And then you have Sargon of Akkadia around 2250 BC, and he conquers a bunch of walled cities, considered the first empire. And then you have the king of Assyria, and for 900 years, Assyria was the biggest empire, but then it was conquered by Babylon. And then, you know, was, you had uh, Egypt for 2,000 years, and then you had Cyrus of Persia, and Alexander the Great had the biggest empire. Then the Romans had the biggest empire, and then Attila the Hun had the biggest empire, and then the Vikings had the biggest empire, and then Genghis Khan had the biggest empire then islam comes along and conquers and then you had the kingdoms of spain and france and finally the, the king of england and, and so left unchecked any one of them would have been glad to rule the world uh and they had um you know and so so that's the ultimate goal and of course each time you have good people responding wanting to resist the uh, evil tort totalitarian dictatorship, wanting to defend human freedom and defend the defenseless. And when power is concentrated into the hands uh, of a dictator, your life is only of worth if the dictator thinks you can help him. Mm -hmm. It's a class society. If you're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead, or you're a slave. And it just keeps repeating itself on an ever-growing scale and um, and it's all ruled through fear. When the devil came to Jesus and said, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world for their mind to give. Uh, and you, you stop and when you're reading that, you're like, whoa, that's pretty audacious. But when did the devil get all the kingdoms of the world? When Adam sinned. So Adam was in charge of the garden. We know that because he got to name everything. Naming implies authority over. You have kids, you get to name them. You're the authority over them. And so Adam named everything. But the Bible says, to whomever you yield your members, servants to obey, to him you are a servant. So the moment Adam obeyed Satan, 
he was posturing himself as the obeyer, the servant, and the devil as the master. That's when the devil usurped the power. And um, and so it's all these kingdoms are top down with these kingdoms, the dictators rule through fear. Ancient Israel came out of Egypt, breaking away from the Pharaoh. And for four, for 400 years, Israel did not have a king. It was unique because it was every single citizen uh, having a being taught the law and being accountable to God to follow the law. So that they're educated and they're moral. And it worked until the priest stopped teaching the law and it turns into chaos. Every man does what's right in their own eyes. Feel like a girl today, boy, tomorrow, whatever. It's all fluid. There's no right. There's no wrong. There's no borderless. It turns into this lawlessness. And that's when they all go to Samuel the prophet. And they say, this self-government system's no, not working. It. We want to be like all the other countries. We want a king. And Samuel cries, and the Lord tells him, they did not reject you. They rejected me. So we get an insight. God's original plan for Israel was to not have a king. Have everybody be taught the law. Everybody own private property. Everybody be blessed. Everybody be armed, right? It was a citizen-based model. And and they rejected that. And God says, okay, we'll do this other plan. I'll still work my plan of redemption. But, you know, um, so America's founding fathers looked back to that ancient Israel model, that first 400-year period when they came out of Egypt. Uh, called the Hebrew Republic. I was sort of talking about this earlier in the interview today, and I got off on one of my rabbit trails. But um, so, so this first 400-year period called the Hebrew Republic, between 1517, uh, when the Reformation started, and 1600s, the uh, Age of Enlightenment, you had an entire century where these scholars in Europe were fascinated that they could not only just read the Bible, but they were fascinated with the part of the Bible of this anomaly of a, this Hebrew Republic where you had millions of people and there's no king and, and it, and it worked. And um, they, they, they were called Christian Hebraists. These were Christian scholars studying the Hebrew law, this, this Hebrew Republic period. And they, they were Puritans, but they were even Catholics and Protestants. They were studying this so much so that later Jewish rabbis would cite these Christian Hebraists uh, as authorities. They would, you know, quote them. Um, there was one of these Puritans that was being put in prison for like a year because uh, he, you know, it was an Anglican king and the Puritans didn't like the Anglicans. Uh, and so, so they says, okay, we're going to put you in prison. Uh, we'll let you have three books. And like, you know, one of them was the Bible, but another one was the Jerusalem Talmud. And so here are these Puritan Christians studying the Jewish oral law and becoming experts at it. Why? Because they were fascinated with how you could have a nation, now not just a city-state. Right? People, you know, as I cite Athens, a democracy. Well, Athens was just one single city, and every citizen had to be at every meeting every day to talk about every issue, totally time-consuming. How could you get anything else done? Because every day you had to be at every meeting and keep up on every issue. A republic is what Rome did. And that's where you took care of your family and your farm and you have someone in your place that went to these meetings. They're your representative. And so the republics could grow larger. And so the Hebrews had a republic. They didn't use that word because it's a Latin word. But theirs was just this system where every town elected its own elders. Every town had a town meeting place called a synagogue. The word synagogue means meeting place. And so they would all meet together. They would learn the law and they would 
elect their city elders. And these city elders would sit at the gates and when they would, you know, at a certain time of the day. And, and if a crime was committed, they'd bring them to the city elders and they would make a decision. It wasn't some king hundreds of miles away that would send his representative with an army to your little town and says, okay, this is what we're going to do. No, no, it was the people electing their own elders. And then they would send a representative from the city to their tribal meeting. And then they would send their elected representatives to the Sanhedrin, the 70 uh, the elders of the whole nation. But it was all bottom up. And it was an anomaly. It was the first place on the planet where you had private land ownership. Because wherever there's a king, you never really own the land. It is always going to be conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You, you cross the king, he'll take away the land and kill you. But in Israel, there was no king for 400 years, and the land was permanently titled to each family. And if you own property, you can accumulate stuff on your property. That's called being blessed. And you can be moved upon in your heart to give away some of your property. That is called charity, right? Karl Marx says communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. How can you be charitable if you don't own anything? What are you going to do, steal from somebody and give it away? Now you're a thief, <laughs> right? No, the whole concept of charity implies that you own stuff that you can be moved upon to voluntarily give away some of your stuff. This was the model. And so in Israel, when people harvested their field, they would leave the gleanings for the poor people to pick through. The corners of the field, like Ruth, you know. And, mm-hmm. and so in Egypt, the poor people, the government came to their rescue. And the government says, you don't have food, we'll give you food, but it's going to be an exchange for your cattle, in exchange for your land, in exchange for your children, in exchange for your lives. Whenever the government does anything, it's always an exchange for something. And it usually involves you giving up control of your life. In ancient Israel's model, the poor were provided for not through a government model, but by individuals on a cellular cellular level, so to speak, helping to take care of their neighbor. And um, and this this concept um, is particularly Judeo-Christian, right? When the Katrina flood happened in uh, New Orleans, you had common people with their little boats going out to people's houses, rescuing them. They didn't sit around, you know, the federal government finally shows up and says, okay, get out of here, get out of here. And then the government sort of fumbles it all and makes a mess of it all. Yeah. No, it was citizens responding. Um, you know, in India, uh, they didn't have that. Uh, in India, if somebody is starving and hurting and in a bad situation, their belief system says that's because they did something bad in a previous life. And if they need to suffer sufficiently, so in their next life, they'll be reincarnated in a higher state, right? Uh, so there was no motivation to help the poor people. It's like, oh, you're poor, you're suffering. Well, that's you're, you're supposed to suffer, yeah. right? It was this biblical model that, no, you help the people that are suffering out of your, uh, uh, what have you been blessed with? And you're voluntarily moved upon in your heart to give it away. But ancient Israel was this unique model. It's the first nation with no standing army. You have a king. He always has an army to enforce his will. In Israel, every man was in the militia, armed with a sword upon their thigh, 
and they were ready at a moment's notice to defend their wife and their family and their community. All right. And um, so, so the city elders that I mentioned, those were the exact same city elders that when they would go into battle would be their captains and their lieutenants and their sergeants, right? Uh, So they would meet together in their community and they would meet together in the battlefield, right? It wasn't like you'd have a whole separate um, unit of organization. It would be, and a matter of fact, that's what England had and in America. But there was this uh, terrible battle of the uh, Sims, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, it was during World War I. And so you had the first use of poison gas and machine guns and uh, on such a massive scale. And so here these British, you know, troops would be on the battlefield and uh, they would all be the same guys that were from the same town that were from the, you know, the same little community meeting and so forth. Well, when every one of the men got killed and they would send these packages of letters back to the towns and they would say, uh, we're sorry, but every single man in your town is not coming back. And so that's when they decided that when they entered the military, they would do a shuffle. Mm -hmm. And so you would be serving with men that you didn't necessarily live around. But prior to that battle, um, they served in battle with the same people that they served in their local community, you know, precinct level type government. Yeah, there was... um... I think it's Dan Carlin talked about that in his series Blueprints for Armageddon. But yeah, it was originally used as a uh, as a recruiting technique. You and your buddies can all go serve together. All right, man, let's go do it. It's going to be a thing together. And then it quickly yet yeah, turned on its head when they realized, oh, if the person next to you dies, it's not that it's just a oh man, that guy's dead. We got to replace him. It's that's my best friend. You're messed up. You can't you can't fight as good. Yeah, there's a there's a whole inverse of that. Um. Yeah. What? What? What you were? What no, you, it was the Battle of the Somme. S O M M E. Yeah. 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 That one. Yeah. It was insane. Yeah. It's um. Now, yeah. I, I I lost I lost my train of thought. It's um. What was I going to say? Nineteen sixteen. Yeah. Um. So, going back to your analogy of zooming out from the picture, the pixels. Is it possible that? we can continue to zoom out that. So like, okay, Tom Brady can win a bunch of Super Bowls or are you and then or way back in the day, it was the Green Bay Packers and then whoever, I, I don't, I don't know enough about football. There are dynasties and we could call those dynasties like uh, free republics or, or tyrants or whatever. They, they arise, they seem to be immortal and they die down and a new one rises and it just keeps going. If you zoom out enough, you could see. So like the pixel would be an individual game. We'd be like, oh, they won a game. You zoom out a little more. You zoom out enough. You go, oh, that's the Patriots dynasty or that's Michael Jordan's dynasty. Could you zoom out even more? And well, what is the even bigger picture? There are dynasties that change hands every decade or so throughout the NFL but what's going on all the while, and it's the NFL itself continues to exist and then make money as a business. Is the is the fighting of socialism and the fighting for freedom and republics, do we zoom out even more? 
and is the thing that's still continuing human civilization and is the clashing of socialism and top-down and down-up ruling, although going back and forth and trading power and there are tyrants rise and freedom fighters rise, is the whole thing that's continuing to push forward human technology to, I don't know what the end goal, leave the planet, be had longer lifespan, I don't know, but from plowshares to pyramids to ships to the lines to Harrier jets to satellites to rovers on Mars is the thing that's going on it's it are, are we getting lost in the weeds is it is it it's not socialism versus versus freedom or or uh, uh, democratic republics is it that all of society continues to push forward? Or is that is that zoomed out too much? Is that now we're not getting now we're not learning any patterns? I'm I'm just trying to is there like a can it be zoomed out even more? To is this a good thing? Is it is it clashing? Is it is it good when someone pulls themselves out of poverty, creates a name for themselves, has a family, has kids, and I don't want those kids to suffer like I did? And then the kids have kids, and those kids are kind of bratty, and the kids' kids have kids, and they're really bratty, trust fund kids. All the while. And those trust fund kids, now they're terrible parents and their kids are on the streets and those kids, maybe a generation or two later, pull themselves out and create a name for themselves and they become a Vanderbilt or a, or a Bezos. Or, and it's all happening at different times. Is, is the rising and destruction of, of quote unquote good nations and the rising and destruction of tyrants, is that just a natural learning process that pushes the whole thing? Because as these names like a Vanderbilt arises and then, you know, and then a, a strong banker and then, you know, they, you know, kind of bratty grandkids, they're happening at different times. So they don't all sync up. So they're overlapping all the while the nation moves forward and the free marketplace moves forward. Is there an even bigger picture? And is it just the evolution of man and this is all, these are all the trees in the forest. Or is that too much? Is it, can the mind not comprehend it? Is it? Yeah. Um, and Jesus says, wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. Uh, you're seeing uh, all of human civilization being at risk. Um, with the technological advance, every advancement in technology is a two-edged sword. Mm -hmm. It can be used for good, by good people for helping the poor, uh, or it can be used by evil people to track uh, so you can you can use this uh, immense scientific uh, advancements in medicine to come up with cures or you can do gain of function research yeah. to create the most dangerous uh, pathogens and viruses uh, that were never uh, possible before mm -hmm. um, you can use a 5g satellite net around the earth uh, to be able to you know, answer questions, bring information and so forth, or you can use it to track people sure. in real time and control their lives. So it's a double-edged sword. And the the time span of switching in power gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Uh, one of the studies that I've done is on the history of weapons, right? And so you had a cane kill label with a rock. And then you had bronze weapons. And for the longest time, that was the, the premier. But then iron weapons come along and the, they don't break as easily. They're stronger. And, but then you have the, uh, phalanx spear the Greeks had, or you have a 
curved scimitar sword that the Muslims had, or you had a composite bow that the Parthians and the Mongols had, could shoot as far as an English longbow, but the English longbow is six feet in length. But the composite bow is this recurved bow uh, made out of, you know, animal skins and so forth. But you, it's a third of the size of an English longbow, but it can shoot 300 yards. And the Mongols could use it on horseback. Mm-hmm. And you have 100,000 of them come. But then the other countries learned how to make them. And then you had gunpowder the Chinese invented, right? And then it would blow apart their wooden so they had corn gunpowder and so they had to come up with metallurgy and then the stirrups the muslims got the stirrups from the persians before the byzantines did so that allowed the the muslims to conquer and uh but now it's gone information so so weapons um have to be directed through information and uh and then if now everything's computerized and you could have a uh ransomware and mm-hmm. shut everything down, or you can have a, a hacking incident uh, with, on your nuclear power plant and so forth. So it's all information. And so the, the turnaround time for one advancement to eclipse the previous one gets shorter and shorter and shorter till, till it's almost instantaneous. Um, but, and it's also growing bigger. So instead of it being a little city or a city state or a region or a country or, and now we're talking global. And we're talking about, and then you you see, uh, you know, Bill Gates, and you can go to his TED talk, where he said the world's overpopulated. There's six point eight billion people, and if we do a really good job with the vaccines, we can lower that population. And of course, you're saying, you're like, wait, wait, what did you just say? Using vaccines to lower the population, and 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 you you have these people with immense amount of wealth and power. And they're uh, embracing ideologies where they want to reduce the world's population. Um, it's very Frankensteinish, and um, so it's um, we're seeing civilization. Um, and, and you know, for the longest time, it was big government on one side and business on the other. But then there's people with you know leftist uh, type of ideologies that realize that all they had to do was buy some stock in these companies and show up at the stockholder meetings and then make resolutions that the board should be more diverse, that it should be more um, embracing of uh, sexual, you know, um, agendas. And then you have these corporations pushing um, these different things. Uh, And you're like, whoa, what happened? You know, we always thought business was, you know, a little more conservative. And and now, no. And then we see that these big businesses like monopolies and they, they, we sort of look at politicians uh, on a pedestal. They look at politicians as servants for hire. Mm Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, you know, we need to hire a new congressman, you know, to, to get up there and, and to push through this bill that gives my corporation favorable status. Okay, put some money behind this guy. And, and the guy gets elected and they call him and they say, okay, this is the bill we want. This is the bill we don't want. You do what we say. Yeah. We hired you. We, we bought you. We paid for your campaign. And and so they'll go out and give a nice speech to to appease their naive you know base but then when it comes to push comes to shove they'll push their their uh, the agenda of so so it's if if there is to be a distinction it would be small small business versus uh big business uh because the big business for a a large part is is in bed with big government um you know it, it used to be you'd have one party 
that was for small government. One party was for big government. Uh, now you have, you know, Democrats want big government to push their agenda, and rhinos want big government, right? It's it's a small percentage of you know the conservatives say no 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 we want smaller government smaller education you know we if we if we get rid of all these little small schools we can have one big high school and we can have the best sports team equipment and stadiums and yeah but you're going to be further away from the parents further away from their communities you can push more your your liberal agenda nobody can track down where it's all coming from when you have a small you know neighborhood school where the parents know every kid, and if the kid steps out of line and gets into a fight on his way home, everybody's going to know about it, and and it's it's going to have more accountability. And um, but so bigger is not always better. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's you know, and so um, anyways, so um, the idea is uh, our founders wanted to take the concentrated power. And separated. It didn't matter if it was concentrated in business. You know, the, the the British Empire. We talk about it having a king, but it was in bed with the British East India Company. Mm-hmm. So here is a company, uh, and they uh, in seventeen seventy this company took over Bengal and a lot of India, and there was a famine, and. You know, you read that famine was partly because of weather, but partly because the British had put all these people to work doing stuff that they normally weren't doing. And so the food wasn't being, you know, uh, addressed as the production. And so when this famine hit, uh, like 10 million people died in Bengal. And this British East India Company was on the verge of bankruptcy. And they go to the parliament, which is in bed with this business, and they say help. And parliament's like, okay, uh, we'll let you tax um you know, the colonies, basically, you know, we'll let you and we'll, we'll shut off the colonies from having any other um, goods brought in from anybody other than you. Uh, and we'll, you know, uh, cut out the middlemen to put out a business, a whole lot of, you know, the little small c- colonial businesses so that you can sell directly to the consumer and all this kind of stuff. But but it was big government in bed with big biz- big business. That was the British Empire, the Hudson Bay Company. Yeah. Uh, the king was a part owner in the Royal African Company. That's why it was so hard to get rid of slavery because the king was making money off it. Yeah. And um, yeah. And so, uh, uh, so, so that's the dilemma that we're facing today. And um, so, small business versus big business, and then also um, a- a- another way of just dis- dis- dividing it is uh, capitalism with a conscience. Versus capitalism without a conscience. What's that? So, um, so you know, the British East India Company, uh, they were for capitalism, but they were growing opium in India and shipping it into China. And China didn't want it. And so they sent the British Navy over there to force them to take it. And it started a war called the Opium Wars. Mm-hmm. And China called it their century of humiliation because they were being forced. I mean, talk about a government business involved with drug trafficking. Yeah, I know, right? Here, it's just bringing in the opium and forcing them to take it. And and so that was, and then, you know, slavery. Um, It's capitalism, but it's, you're enslaving human beings. So in America uh, and in, you know, other different areas, but you had Christian people with money, 
and they were using that money for good. Uh, And when you read it, you know, I was in Dayton, Ohio, and they had a big, massive flood one time. And um, there was no FEMA. There was no emergency government assistance program. And so you had the National Cash Register Company and the, um, what was the, which turned into IBM eventually, I think. I I could be mistaken on that. But you had uh, auto manufacturing. And I think that's also where the Wright brothers came from. But but basically you had private, these corporations pitched in the money and they used their factory facilities to dispense food and clothing and so forth. And they helped rescue the community. Um, so it was capitalism was a con- with a conscience. And uh, so it, it's not so much that the money is good or bad. It's who has it and are they using it for good or bad? And that's where morality comes in. Mm-hmm. And if the majority of the country is a, a Bible teaching, and what I mean by that is, where it says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. You know, one of those, and I probably need to go here fairly soon. One of the um, critical race theory exercises that they do with students is they line everybody up on a field at the starting line. And then they say, well, if you're from a family with two parents, take a step forward. And some of the kids step forward and the other ones stay on the starting line. And then they say, now, if you're a family that uh, you're, you, you know, uh, lived in a safe neighborhood, take a step forward. And if you were able to, you know, go to college, step forward. And if you were able to do this, step forward. And so pretty soon you see these kids way ahead. Then the kids that are still on the starting line and they're saying, well, see, they had this unfair self uh, head start. And so we need to use this critical race theory to even it up so so everybody starts to the same place. It's it's a lie. Why is it a lie? <clears throat> Where is the finish line? The finish line in for those with a biblical <clears throat> point of view is standing before the Lord and <clears throat> him saying, uh, whatever you do to the, did to the least these my brethren you did unto me. You know, when, Lord, did we visit you in the prison? And when did we, we want to see you sick and take care of you? And when is it? Whatever you do, the least is my brother. So, so what? That you've got lots of stuff. What matters is the finish line is, did you help other people mm-hmm. with all of that stuff? Did you give? Did you help? Right? It's not, if there is no God in the picture, then it's just how much selfish things can you accumulate before you die leave it all behind yeah and and that's that's the secular view so so education teaches you how to do something and religion teaches you should you do something okay so it's not just science oh we can use this science and we can you know solve all these diseases and bring the cures but if you have people with no morals using the science, they can do gain of function research and create terrible diseases. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, so the, you know, science and education tells you what you can do. And it's morality that tells you what you should do. Yeah. And that's where the, the, the Christian teaching co- comes in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You could use nuclear power to desalinate ocean water. 
or you can use it to build bombs and it's it's which one do you want to do um can you send me your uh your study on the on the history of weapons can you email that to me um to be honest i don't know if i've got it in one concise article but um i i share about it when i'm giving talks i was gonna well I was gonna say that would be a really cool episode just just to hear the, your 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 study on on weapons. But uh, yeah, if, well, if you can't find it, if you can still give the talk, man, I'd love to do that sometime. That would be, that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, it um, uh, the, the the short window of time that the next advancement comes along, you know, it was Alexander the Great had the phalanx spear. It's a big, long, like a twelve foot spear, and they. Um, would uh, march in formation with them pointing up in the air. And then on a particular command, they could all lower them uh, between the guy in front of them and the guy in front of them and the guy in front of them. So if an army's charging, uh, the army can't even get within 12 feet of the first line of soldiers because of these long spears. And, and But then uh, what if you get attacked from the flank? All of a sudden, they'd give a command. Everybody's spear would go up in the air. They would all turn to the right or left, and then they would lower it. And they they put it down, print it, and so they could work as a group, but work as an individual, and and that allowed Alexander the Great to conquer the world. That right there, um, and then the Mongols had the composite bow and all the other different things. But um, that's a fascinating study. But again, my website's AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com, and the, if there's one book that I talked about today, it would be the Socialism. The Real History from Plato to the Present, and the subtitle is How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. Absolutely. I will put that book in the description. It's a fantastic read. And um, to to my listeners who maybe lean the opposite way of Dr. Fetter and I, listen to it. And, and if you want to come on here, dispute it. I, I try to keep an open mind to everybody. Um, at the very least, it's a, I loved it. You don't need to hear me fanboy anymore over it. But I loved it. It's an incredibly well-cited book. And it's a terrifying book, and I love that you touched on Yuri Bezmenov in it. But I know we got to wrap this one up for now. I kept you six minutes longer than I said I would, and it's unforgivable on my half. Um, no, no, you're good. You're good. Dr. Federer, thank you so much, sir. Um, I will text this one to you when it's up. And God bless you. Have a wonderful day. The book is in the description. Get it. Thank you so much, sir. Oh, thank you. Anytime. Absolutely, my man. Thank you. All right. Go- All right. Goodbye. God Recording bless you. Recording stopped. Bye-bye.